Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, good afternoon. Thank you for being the drummer boy. (laughs) So, we're moving along in our precepts course, and we have mastered (laughs) nonviolence, honesty, not stealing is what we've just covered, which is uh, the practice of really being satisfied with what we have. And there's a logical next step, which is to uh, be satisfied with what we have, and then be wise with sexual energy. And um, for a monk, this is really simple, (coughs) which is celibacy. There's nothing else really to say. The practice is celibacy, and that's what you do. And um, for the householder, uh, this is a little more complex, I think. And um, this is what I hope we can explore today. Um, Although we could probably spend hours, uh, I could tell you all kinds of places in the Vinaya Code, in the Pali Canon, where uh, there are rules about how a monk should practice. But I think maybe they'll sound far away and foreign and maybe not as applicable to those of us who are not monks uh, and those of us who are not nuns. So our approach today is going to be to explore what it means to recognize sexual energy and to be able to work wisely with it. And I can't help but referring to my own uh, training in psychology where early Freud thought that when you start encountering energy that's unconscious, one of the ways it first manifests is a sexual energy. And although his uh, um, theories changed over the course of you know, the first, especially 15 years of his, his uh, career, um, sexual energy for Freud was really a problem when it wasn't handled well. And um, that never changed. And I think we all know this, right? We live in a culture where you see, you know, sex everywhere. um, And yet somehow it's still something that is hard to talk about. And um, maybe we value our friendships or our relationships where sexual energy is something we can talk about. But sometimes those are rare and far and few between. 
And maybe sexual energy is still as unconscious as it was in Vienna a century ago. Um, And certainly, there are other topics we can throw into the mix. Maybe another thing that people don't talk about too much is money. But um, we're going to talk about sexual energy today. And not uh, so much uh, celibacy, but rather how to take sexual energy and work with it. In mind, uh, in the body, and in speech, internally and externally. And, at the same time, the three levels of a precept that we've always been looking at. Which first is the literal, second is the compassionate, and third is the koan level, the mystery level. And so I thought we would start today with a koan. And um, I came across this koan by typing in to Google, uh, sex, koan. (laughs) And nothing came up, but what did show up are a list of all the koans where women um, are the main characters. And that was only about two pages. So there are very few koans, actually, that feature women. And this is one of them. And uh, the more I read it, the more applicable I I thought it was to to today. So um, it's called The Old Ladies Enlightenment. One morning, an old lady experienced an awakening while cleaning up after breakfast. She rushed over and announced to Master Hakuin, my body, or sorry, the Buddha, has filled my body. The whole universe radiates. It's marvelous. Nonsense, Hakuin retorted. Is it shining up your asshole? The old lady gave Hakuin a shove and shouted, What do you know about enlightenment? And then they both roared and fell over in laughter. (laughs) I'll read it again. One morning, an old lady experienced an awakening while cleaning up after breakfast. Now, right away, this is a pretty radical thing to suggest. Uh, Somebody who is a lady probably is not getting enlightened. Usually, if she's cleaning up after breakfast, she has a family, and she's working in her family, so that one day, when the nest is empty and she doesn't have to be a householder, she's obviously not a nun, then she can wake up. You see? And here, she's waking up in the middle of uh, cleaning up after breakfast. So I think that's that's just a beautiful line right there. And maybe historically is more radical than we can appreciate here. Maybe. I don't know. Um, She's cleaning up after breakfast. Can you picture this? And she suddenly has an awakening. She rushes over and announces to Hakuin. Now, most of you know Hakuin. He's the person who commented on the Heart Sutra that I I often refer to of beads on a tray, who was a really problematic guy. Just liked to poke at everything. And... um, he was also, he's also one of the most important polygraphers in, in Japan. And um, the interesting thing about the story here is Hakuin is, is hard. 
you know. He's really intense. And he would be the person to go to to see if your awakening is real or not. Right? So immediately she goes to him and she says, the Buddha has filled my body. The whole universe radiates. It's marvelous. And so Hakuin says, nonsense. He's testing, right? Is the Buddha shining up your asshole? And uh, she gives him a shove back and says, what do you know about enlightenment? And they both fall over laughing. They're equal. And I think what I love about this story is that the awakening also happens inside your asshole. Like, when was the last time you looked in there? I don't want you to answer that. (laughs) Maybe we'll get to that later. Um... In other words, in other words uh, awakening, or being awake, penetrates everywhere. I don't have to unpack the metaphor, I hope. Yeah. And uh, traditionally in Buddhism, um, especially in er- early Buddhism, there are three different levels that our practice happens at. And the first is the unconscious level, where practice is taking place in a realm that you can't see, that you don't know. Where... Um, Something's working on you, but you don't even know how it's working. And I like to think about this in terms of, do you ever wake up from a dream, and you don't really know what the dream was about, but you feel like something really shifted? Kind of like if you had tectonic, like psychic plates, you know, and something shifts. And you don't really know exactly how it, but you can feel that something has shifted, but maybe you don't have... You, don't, you can't talk about it to yourself. So practice happens at this unconscious level. And I think the precepts really work at this level too. That when we become aware of the kind of energy that moves through us, um, it, it, it molds us at a deep level that's maybe even pre-verbal. You know, um, for example, um, sexual energy is... Uh, an energy, so is anger, so is envy, so is jealousy. But when sexual energy arises, usually the first thing we do with it, like we do with anything, is we have attachment towards it, which means it's pleasurable and we want to repeat it. Or we have aversion, like, oh no, this is bad, not now, this is dirty. You know, whatever. And when this happens, we create stories about sexual energy. But even before that, we think it's mine. Sexual energy is mine. And for there to be a subject, a me, there has to be an object. So whether it happens in the body, in speech, or in mind, when we're caught in sexual energy thinking it's my sexual energy then there has to be something out there. And this is just how ignorance operates. This is how avidya operates. Avidya is always taking process and turning it into a noun. And it's turning whatever's showing up into something that's reifiable. And whenever you get reification, you get deification. And then sexual energy is then an object, it's a deity, it's something that is, you know, too big to contend with and omnipotent. So, um, 
I think this is the problem that most of us fall into. It's my sexual energy, I better do something with it, or not do something with it. I better act on it, or I better get rid of it. And then actually we don't really get to see what it is. You know. And as most of you know with sexual energy, when it arises, it arises um, physically, as sensation, as feeling, and then it has stories. Layers and layers of stories. The stories flow through gender, through culture, through your history. Now the key with sexual energy is that it's impersonal. That it's, it's the natural world in human form. And our key, I think, in our practice, like with every other energy, and you know this already, is just to hold it with really open hands. Not to contract around it. And um, there is nothing wrong, for example, with sexual desire. You know, this is a fantastic thing. For, For people who have sexual desire that they have never really spent time with, and they try and push it away, it grows roots in other places and will, 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 will show up somehow. Carl Jung says if you don't make something unconscious conscious, then you risk falling into a hole backwards. Has anybody ever fallen into a hole backwards? You know what this, this feels like? So like with any energy, if you repress it, it's like compost, right? It goes into the compost and it starts um, growing and multiplying and getting smelly and rich also and fertile. So what I like about this koan is it's a reminder. If you're awake, that includes being awake to everything, even to your asshole. And it's funny. It's funny because, you know, I mean, they're roaring, they're laughing together, you know. And I think sometimes maybe there are certain energies or certain parts of sexual energy that we don't want to be awake to. Maybe we like certain uh, layers of sexual energy and other layers are like uh, unacceptable. And the problem is not the sexual energy. Right? The problem is the clinging and the craving and the attachment to outcome. Um, early on in American Buddhist practice there was a real obsession with meditation people just wanted to sit they wanted to go on retreat and the focus of Buddhist practice was meditation and it also happens that in those first 40 years there were a ton of scandals in Buddhist organizations, one after the other. And um, a lot of times the scandals involve students with each other, and it also often involved teachers and students, and actually it's still going on. You know, just last year, Edo Shimano Roshi was finally thrown out of his um, uh, Zen center in upstate New York. 
for having numerous, numerous um, <coughs> affairs with his students, but not just affairs, but all kinds of abuse, sexual abuse. And one thing that was happening in his uh, um, community, which is, I think, a lesson that a lot of other communities learned, is that you know Asian teachers would come over from Asian cultures alone into this culture with no teacher, with no community, with no colleagues. And so when the focus of the practice was so much on what the students wanted, which was meditation, and the ethics were left out, because originally as the practice showed up on this soil, nobody wanted to learn about ethics. They wanted to get concentrated and achieve nirvana. But over time, what happened was, as those scandals were showing up, more and more Buddhist communities started to have boards. They would set up a board of directors, and the teacher would uh, be employed by the board. And so the board kind of kept an eye on what the teacher was doing. And I think that has really, that model has really helped American Buddhism. And these kind of scandals are probably still going on, but not like they were in the 70s and 80s. And uh, a great book on this topic that I really encourage you to to read if you're interested is um, called Shoes Outside the Door, about the story of Richard Baker in San Francisco. Shoes Outside the Door, yeah. Um, Because the thing about this practice, Trungpa Rinpoche used to have this line, he used to say that, Uh, Dharma practice is a laxative, not a sedative. (laughs) That goes well with the asshole koan. I should have thought of that. (laughs) Is a laxative and not a sedative. And and it, it kind of opens you up to a wider spectrum of what can move through you. And wherever you're tight, or wherever you're contracted, or wherever you have repression the energy will flow there. You know? And sexual energy is just one energy among many that will flow. Um, I wanted to read what a couple teachers say about this. This is a scholar, some of you might know, at the very Center for Buddhist Studies named Andy Olensky. Once again, it's easier for monks and nuns. Celibacy is non-negotiable, end of story. But for lay people, there's a sliding scale. One of the ways it was defined in the ancient world was that it's inappropriate for a man to have sexual relations with a woman who's under the protection of another man, which of course means under the protection of one's father until marriage and then one's husband afterwards. It basically outlawed or forbade premarital sex and extramarital sex. How you apply that today is different because so many of the cultural definitions are malleable. However, if we're engaging in the sexual act in a way that inflicts real pain or humiliation or is exploitative, we can be pretty sure we're on the unwholesome side of the continuum. But if we're doing a sexual act with an attitude of generosity 
or loving kindness or interest will probably be in more wholesome areas of behavior. It's not exactly what you do with who as much as the quality of mind with which you're approaching what you're doing. Here's Norman Fisher's response. At the time of the sexual revolution, we had the idea that sex was just a thing you did, and that if you got over all your hang-ups, it was really no big deal. It turns out, though, it's not so simple to get over your hang-ups, and that sexual activity is powerful. It has a powerful karmic effect. Andrew Olensky. Yeah. I'll tell you after where you can read those if you want to follow up. And now I want to read one more, and we can all follow through, because this is in your, in your book. This is uh, teaching number 14 in Thich Nhat Hanh's Mindfulness Trainings. Right Conduct for Lay Members. Aware that sexual relations... Has everybody found that? Aware that sexual relations motivated by craving cannot dissipate the feeling of loneliness, but will create more suffering, frustration, and isolation. I'm determined not to engage in sexual relations without mutual understanding, love, and a long-term commitment. In sexual relations, I must be aware of future suffering that may be caused. I know that to preserve the happiness of myself and others, I must respect the rights and commitments of myself and others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to protect couples and families from being broken by sexual misconduct. I will treat my body with respect and preserve my vital energies, sexual, breath, spirit, for the realization of my bodhisattva ideal. I will be fully aware of the responsibility for bringing new lives into the world, and will meditate onto the world in which we are bringing new beings. Some of you who were in an intensive once we actually spent the week rewriting these. And this was an interesting thing to to rewrite. Um, I'm just going to say a couple more things and then the idea is to sort of hand it over to you. Um, um, Some of you know that Karina and I date or uh, what do you call it? Dating? I don't know. Something. Partnering. And um, so... When, when we were starting to, to be attracted to each other, um, I called my teacher, Norman, and said, Norman, I have a problem. And he said, oh, well, what's the problem? And, you know, I explained. You know, I've known Karina for X number of years and so on. She practices here. And he said, oh, well, that's great, you know. Um, so Karina and I talked about it for about eight months. And then finally we decided we would... We would Try it out. So then Norman said, okay, well, if you're going to actually try it out, then there's rules. And um, he gave us two rules. Uh, The first rule was not to practice together for three months. 
And uh, this was a great rule that I didn't like at all. Um, And the idea is is that um, because we have a certain relationship in the Sangha and know each other in the Dharma world, then um, it was really important to be able to know each other without all that. And to explore what it's like to be together without that. And then the second rule, which I also didn't like, (laughs) was, uh, and tell everyone. Because actually, when misuse of sexual energy is misuse, often it happens because there's a secret. right? And then it comes out, oh, so-and-so was dating, or so-and-so fell in love. And then it fragments the community because there was a secret whole time. And so these were the two rules. And, you know, every sangha has different rules. In American sanghas, there's a very common one. Um, Usually there's a third rule, which is that if you're living in a community, so if you're living at a practice center, you also have to leave the practice center for a certain number of months if you're going to try out the relationship. You can't try out the relationship in the practice center. And um, I really didn't like the rules. And we followed them, and I'm so glad for the rules. Um, especially the honesty part, you know, and the transparency part. So I think that, you know, sometimes it's really good with um, sexual energy, once it's acknowledged to really explore it and be honest with it. It doesn't mean necessarily acting on it, but it can just mean saying to someone, oh, there's sexual energy here. And to not, you know, try and make it go away. Secondly, um, the literal part of the precepts, which is, um, well, let's decide what, we'll decide what that is by the end of the day. (laughs) And the second level of the precepts is the compassion level to then take sexual energy and do what you can with it in the most compassionate way. And the third is the koan level and how it wakes you up to complexity and to mystery. And so I thought I would end my introduction on this note. And Karina has to sit here and, you know, I don't know if you want to say anything. Um, Yeah. No, it's nice to talk about it in the open way. So that's all I'm going to say for now. You know, actually today I didn't really want to say much. Um, I just kind of wanted to offer a bit of an introduction to this topic. And then uh, a few people have volunteered to give uh, um, five-minute talks on brahmacharya, sexual energy, which literally translated um, uh, means um, to live like Brahma. And for those of you who don't know who Brahma is, Brahma is the creator god. Whenever I think of Brahma, I always think of a motorcycle, a two-stroke motorcycle engine that goes brum, brum, you know. It's like to, like, accelerate and to, you know, have pistons firing and to, like, build cities and make art and neighborhoods and, 
and architecture and to grow things. This is the energy of Brahma. And it's to live like Brahma, which is to take creative energy. Because what is sexual energy? It's like, biologically, it's also creative energy. And to uh, do something with it. To live like Brahma is to do something with that energy. To build with it. And that's why Thich Nhat Hanh's comment about, you know, to be aware of what you're creating. And this is true even, you know, with women to women and men to men. You know, every time you engage sexually, you're planting something. It may not literally be, a, a, you know, a baby, but you're making something. You're making something. Luz Origuri uh, has a wonderful line where she says, a family begins with two, not with three, with two. As soon as there's two people together, uh, you've created a family. And the effect of your action reverberates, and in every way it reverberates, is the making of family. So um, the people who are going to speak today are Pat... Karina, Rupi, yeah, and Mary, yeah. Um, a nice way to do this maybe would be to uh, for them to speak and then for the group to respond for five minutes. You know, maybe if you could just offer some response to whoever's speaking based on what they offer. And um, I think maybe we won't record this part. Yeah.